studio. Let's explore what it means to be well. From meditation, stress management, safer substance use, and sexual health, we will literally talk sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Join us to dive deep into some student health questions. We'll learn about wellness together, try some coping tools, and meet some interesting people. Your co-hosts, Heather and Craig. The perfect blend of Campus Health and Wellness Center and cells. Each week, we'll DIY a wellness tool together. And then nerd out and dig into the science behind how it works. Email your health and wellness related questions to wellpod at durhamcollege.ca to be discussed anonymously on air. Welcome, Welcome to the, the wellpod, wellpod at DC. DC. Welcome to the WellPod at DC from the Media Hub on RiotRadio.ca. So last week we had Chris Call join us mm-hmm. as a guest, and he 
gave a fantastic kind of intro into his addictions journey and his recovery journey. For those of you that missed the episode, you can always rewatch it on riotradio.ca. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Chris and I, when we met to kind of talk about the show and what we were going to talk about, it was so hard to narrow in on because he has such great experiences both from his past and what he's currently doing. Mm-hmm. And recovery is so unique and can take so many different forms. Uh, if you're curious about some of the work Chris is doing, a reminder, you can find him on Instagram, uh, Inspire by Example Canada, and also his website, inspirebyexample.ca, has some fantastic resources. One thing that really stood out to me when I was first meeting with Chris and we were talking about him coming on is one of the things he said about his recovery was for him, building a life worth living was a really vital component. And we got talking about loving life and, and how you do that. And so in our way that we build the show, we start realizing how interconnected everything starts to become when it For comes sure. to our wellness. And so this week we are talking about love mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and building a life with love in it. Uh, to start off the show today, you heard Stand By Me by Benny King. To me, one of the most classic uh, love songs that we have, but even music, it was hard to narrow in on what songs to pick for today's playlist. In fact, some studies, and there was a variety of different studies I looked to at the psychology of music, some ranged between 50 and 67 percent that said uh, music touched on the aspect of love and the emotion of love. 50 to 67 percent of all music Mm -hmm. is connected to love. Um, And why they think this might be in music psychology is love is painful, love is universal, and love is powerful. One of my uh, favorite songs I quoted, in fact, in my wedding vows. And so music and love go hand in hand. For yourself, what are some songs that kind of come to mind when it comes to love songs for yourself? Do any kind of jump out at you? I don't know that any jump out at me, but kind of some of the ones that you or we have listed, I should say, but that you uh, posted as options to look at are just, yeah, really up uh, up my alley in terms of like, yep, that will work and that will work. But even <laughs> kind of bouncing off what you're saying, what I thought about is like, yeah, there's a lot of songs like that's the focus. It's not just songs about stuff, but a vast majority are songs in some way or another about love yes and then when you look at the lyrics it's like Mm -hmm. ooh, we might actually have quite a distorted view Mm -hmm. on what love is Mm -hmm. so today's student question touches on some of these aspects and so the student question of the week was i am heartbroken is it better to have loved and lost and never have loved at all why is love so hard Mm So today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the theories behind falling in love, some of the neuroscience and anatomy behind what's happening when we're falling in love. We'll talk a little bit about the power of connection, and then we'll talk about heartbreak because of its uh, connection with love as a whole. So let's talk a little bit about some different theories of love. So we could spend weeks talking from an art perspective, music and paintings and sculpture. Uh, We could talk about culture as well and and dig into more anthropologic studies. (laughs) Is that the the word? (laughs) Um, When it comes to culture and and how Mm. we've defined love, perhaps from a more social aspect. Uh, We can also look at evolutionary studies. And so especially when we look at more primate evolutional studies, a lot of the research of love is connected with things like pair bonding or mating and parenting and attachment. 
And what's really interesting is humans, what a lot of research was finding is humans, our infants have really high needs. Mm -hmm. And I'm a a first time mom and I can attest to that. (laughs) So humans, infants have really high needs, but they also have really high vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a little bit about vulnerability today. Mm -hmm. It's really weaved and interconnected with love. And so some early theories of love is that we have this high need as humans for what's called a bi-parental care. So it's really important that we kind of parent and family in small groups and small tribes. And this helps us um, be able to support and love and attach uh, the upbringing of our families and of our children. And one of the things I looked at as well is how love can be a motivator. And we have theories dating back uh, 50s and the 60s. We were doing a lot of research on love, which makes sense if we think about the 60s, why research at that time (laughs) might have been really digging deep into love. Um, But Davison and Beck in 2019 really dug into the studies of the 50s and different theories on love. And one of the main kind of theories of the 50s was just around exposure. And we talked about this last week, Mm -hmm. talking about connections again. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week with addictions, how beliefs where if there's a substance and you have exposure to that substance, that's what leads to addiction. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s, some of these studies were looking at exposure to love. So if you're around somebody and there's this sense of attraction uh, and this ability for pair bonding and sharing, that perhaps that proximity is what is leading to love. But then in the 70s, John Lee developed what is called the color wheel of love. And he believed that love had more to do with different dimensions, or he called them uh, love colors. So his six theories on love were that love can be broken up into friendship, romantic love, practical love, exciting non-communal love, or committal love, I should say, Um, and then also a jealous sense of love as well. So really kind of obsessive, uh, jealous feeling of love. And then the last one was unconditional love that we see a lot of times in families and pair bondings, for instance. One of the things that first came to mind as well when we were preparing for the show was something called love languages. Have you heard of love languages before as a kind of a theory on love? Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. And when I dug into that, I was like, oh, actually, there's a lot of controversy surrounding Chapman's work from the 90s on love languages. Uh, He's made a few homophobic remarks, but also there's no scientific evidence Mm -hmm. behind his love theories. And yet it's one of the main... Um, kind of avenues that for many of us Mm -hmm. when we start thinking about love and love theories comes to mind so if you are new to Chapman I recommend not purchasing his book but maybe finding one secondhand at a thrift store (laughs) or uh, going to the library but the love language is the idea behind it and keep in mind no scientific research Mm -hmm. behind it but he believed that there was um, five main types of the way that we communicate love Mm -hmm. and can foster and build love so he talks about acts of service doing the dishes, Mm -hmm. taking the dog for a walk, Mm -hmm. right? He talks about gifts, buying of gifts, Mm -hmm. or um, gifts don't necessarily need to have cost a lot of money, but the giving Mm -hmm. of material items, physical love language, touch, massage, intimacy in that area, quality time, sitting down on the couch, playing some cards, hanging out. And then the final one was words of affirmation. Mm. So you did a really great job today. I love you so much. Oh, thank You're you. You're such a great partner. <laughs> uh, for yourself, is there a love language that you find yourself more drawn to uh, for receiving love that you're a little bit more receptive to? Acts of service, gifts, physical, quality time, words of affirmation. 
I think quality time is one of them. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of torn between also recognizing myself and it's not, it doesn't necessarily match the quality time as opposed to like I would say I'm more acts of service, someone, how can I help you? What can I help you with? But then don't necessarily, yeah, connect with that in terms of the other way around, if that Absolutely. makes sense. Yeah. And what's important about the, this kind of theory mm -hmm. is that it wasn't just about recognizing how you like to be loved, but then how the other individuals in your lives, mm -hmm. how they mm -hmm. might kind of hear that love and, and need that love. And so finding a way to kind of match within your friendships and your mm -hmm. partners, what you're needing and what others are needing mm -hmm. was kind of the concept behind these love languages. <laughs> But what I wanted to focus on today is Robert Sternberg's work of 2004, The Triangular Theory of Love. And so he breaks down, if you kind of visualize this triangle, and if you'd like to draw it, if you're listening or watching right now, if you're a visual person, if you draw a triangle, kind of the end result is what's called consummate love. So this is kind of what we're aiming for. And the three pillars, so your three corners of your triangles, the first one is passion, which when I think of love is one of kind of the first avenues mm -hmm. that often comes to mind. We have lots of examples of passionate love. Uh, and this is uh, where we get very infatuated with somebody. Mm -hmm. So puppy love, love sickness. These are some terms that are often associated with this kind of very passionate, lustful version mm -hmm. of love. And a little bit of research that you did for this week, what's kind of happening within us when we have this more lustful type of love happening? For sure. So the different stages that we'll talk about today are different, tied to different chemicals uh, that are going on in terms of uh, in terms of our nervous system and so on. And so the number one for for the lust or passion side of things are the are actually the hormones testosterone and estrogen. And so they're interplayed, uh, interplaying, I should say, with um, sort of at least some articles that you read, but that aspect of lust of like libido, sexual gratification and so on, that these are the two major hormones involved in in. Uh, controlling might not be the word that I want to use for that, but uh, but um, controlling that, right? Our hypothalamus releases hormones that then trigger the release of testosterone or estrogen, and then they relate ultimately to uh, to our, our yeah our uh, drive in terms of sex drive, libido, and uh, and so on. And then another part of our brain, our amygdala, which is just kind of fun to say, our amygdala, <laughs> but is related or has an influence on that as well, because it was, and I want to make sure I get this right, but is associated with our uh, emotions and urges and um, and like spur of the moment decisions, it uh, fires. Interesting. And so it interplays with uh, this aspect of passion and, you know, if you will, and I'm oversimplifying, but like I want that or, and so, you know, the amygdala kicking in and, and, uh, and going for it. Even if you think of um, musical artists, for instance, or athletes, when they use that word passion, right? They're mm -hmm. often talking about that sense of urgency and that immediate response. Something mm -hmm. came to them in a kind of moment of passion mm -hmm. and they created something. Yeah, for sure. Very interesting. Very, yeah. very. Very interesting. So we have this triangle. The one corner is passion, lust. The other corner, though, is what uh, Sternberg describes as intimacy. And this is a sense of liking. This is a sense of kind of connection or friendship and emotional closeness. 
Um, and so this can sometimes when we think about attraction, right? Mm-hmm. When we really start being drawn into somebody and really developing those deeper bonds, this is considered intimacy and, mm-hmm. and the kind of second aspect. Mm-hmm. Anything to say about kind of this attraction area? Yeah. So in terms of attraction, then it's different parts of uh, our brain and I'm oversimplifying as much as even to point out the amygdala or the hypothalamus. There are various parts of our brain that are interconnected and figuring things out and responding to uh, these things. But in terms of uh, in terms of hormones, it's different hormones than the testosterone and estrogen at that point. But things like dopamine and serotonin and um, I'm missing one. Oh, and adrenaline, mm. which are related. Dopamine is kind of, um, you know, a pleasure uh, hormone and serotonin, a happy hormone and adrenaline. Of course, if you think kind of the fight or flight, you know, amped up, but the the all of these intertwine to sort of the the excitement of something novel and something that you know I I, I want and that's making me happy and yeah. and so on. So those start to be released in terms of um, not necessarily as we said it's different than sort of lust and want, but an attraction for something that you know oh this thing makes me happy and I'm I'm interested in it if you will. Mm. Yeah. Reminds me of the term we've been thinking of when we say we are falling in love, right? Mm-hmm. The deeper you get to know somebody as you're building that intimacy and you're mm-hmm. really starting to get to know them and fall into that interesting to think about how some of those hormones for might sure. be at play. And I thought it was interesting one of the articles we uh, looked at uh, what, talked about the honeymoon phase and that kind of uh, again, not uh, not lustful, but uh, attraction. That's you know, you know, I'm so in love, if you will, and I don't know what I'm thinking or whatever, and uh, maybe a little scrambled. Is as these hormones are being released and interplaying, because we're so interconnected. Something like serotonin, that is a happy. Uh, hormone, but then it's also tied to things like uh, um, related to food and our enjoyment of food. But as we release more, it affects like how much we're eating and our appetite. And so this is this honeymoon phase of I don't know what to do mm-hmm. <laughs> is partially like stuff is being uh, sort of scrambled as these hormones are playing a role in terms of our attraction. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. And then the last <laughs> triangle corner so we have passion intimacy any guesses on what the last piece might be connected to i is it more like the long-term connections and so on yeah Yeah. so it's what is called commitment Mm -hmm. so this is where sometimes referred to as empty love if you just Mm kind of have it on its own commitment but it's where you have shared goals with somebody's somebody or somebody's uh, and it's a committed long-term. So it's more of this long-term sensation. Uh, we see this with arranged marriages, for instance. It starts from that place of commitment. Um, and then the idea is hopefully it can grow into those other avenues, building on intimacy and passion as well. So what's happening long-term with love? Yeah, so we kind of touched upon it a little bit last week, just as we introed some of the... Um, some of the uh, concepts there, but uh, oxytocin and vasopressin are the two major uh, hormones going on there in terms of making those long-term connections. What I was saying last week was the uh, after, well, during childbirth and then after childbirth in the sense of mom holding on to a baby with skin-to-skin contact is oxytocin is being released and there's that bonding that's going on because of those uh, connections. 
uh, and that relates to love even in terms of uh, partner love and long-term love of like physical contact touching and so on which you alluded to uh, earlier one of the love right? languages yes yeah. exactly and then vasopressin is a little bit more related to um, like sexual interaction it's released a lot after uh, after sex but uh, again it's still tied to though it's released for long-term bond with that individual that uh, that um, you, you've had sex with ultimately, right? Try to get you to stay. Exactly. Don't put your clothes on, leave. <laughs> stay here and bond with me. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it's interesting, and you mentioned this too, but like it's not just a human thing, but mammals, birds, and it's tied to as much as we're talking about sex there, but it's tied to um, processes that go on in other animals as well, like nest building. So, you know, two birds uh, deciding to build nest to have offspring in um, and of course we sort of nest ourselves in terms of having kids and getting room ready and those kinds of things and uh, yeah it's interesting and even a, apart from sort of mates if you will you know connections uh, in terms of uh, um, what's the word I'm looking but like community as well and watching out for community and each other it's very interesting again what all is going on in there in terms of the various hormones very interesting. Mm -hmm. So the beliefs here, this theory of Sternberg's from 2004, if we have these three triangle corners, commitment, passion, intimacy, is we can then have different uh, formulations. So if you have passion, intimacy, this is romantic love, mm -hmm. right? An affair, perhaps a long-term affair, you might be feeling this way. So something without commitment, mm -hmm. um, something that's maybe seeing, seem short-term. <laughs> uh, we could have passion and commitment though. And hopefully a lot of our long-term committed relationships have this sensation still of passion. Hard to maintain. Mm -hmm. Passion, I think some of those hormones, testosterone and mm -hmm. estrogen, might be hard for us to continue to pump sure. longer term. Yep. Um, and then we can also have commitment and intimacy. Uh, and this is where our family and, and mm -hmm. love sometimes can land here as well. Um, but a reminder that the goal is all three really hard to do mm -hmm. and maintain, especially knowing all of the science that's happening neurologically behind the scenes. For sure. We're going to take a music break. When we come back, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the power of connection and talking about that kind of uh, oxytocin and bonding. We're going to look at some really cruel experiments called the monkey love experiments. Uh, and then we're going to do an activity. So grab a pen of paper or just something to help you reflect. I'm going to try to get Craig to fall in love with me with something <laughs> called the 36 questions to fall in love. And so don't forget to follow us on social media at DCSA Media Hub. And you can also check us out on Instagram at wellness at DC. Next song is Underneath It All by No Doubt featuring Lady Saw right here on radio.ca. You don't have to forget. Just remember the Sunday, all right? There's times when I want something more, someone more like me. There's times when this dress rehearsal scenes. Incomplete, but you see the colors in. 
Who take the butter, Johnny Walker Black? Better bring it back, yeah? My friends, you know, the Welcome back to the Well Pod at DC, here from the Media Hub on RiotRadio.ca. So, we've been talking about love, and one of the things that I mentioned earlier is with infants, what we notice is a difference between some other creatures. So when we look at deer, for instance, when deer are born, they're up and walking and running within minutes. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is called a pre-coral um, type of uh, dynamic or process. But humans, infants, work what is called altrical, altrical mm-hmm. beings. And this points to that we have high, high needs mm-hmm. when we are first born. And so that family unit, that community is really important to protect us and ensure that we can grow and Mm -hmm. and become uh, an adult form of ourselves and so attachment is something that is really interesting when we talk about love of how it's maybe connected to some different theories how we fall in love Mm -hmm. and the power of connection so when we think about the power of connection some attachment theory was developed uh, starting in the 40s and 50s kind of the the first one to really look at it is a individual named Bablo Bablo 
B-A-W-L-B-Y. How would you pronounce that? I'm not That's sure. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should have Googled <laughs> yeah, pronounced yeah. that. Uh, but he was one of the first to really start thinking about attachment. Mm -hmm. And then they started doing some unethical research in the 50s and 60s. Harlow is cited as doing the young monkey love experiments. So as mentioned, really unethical, really quite mm -hmm. cruel, especially now looking back, mm -hmm. but it taught us a lot about attachment and about love and the power of connection. Are you familiar with the monkey experiments? Do you know a little yeah, bit about- Yeah, on a general level of putting, yeah, different monkeys and uh, baby monkeys in different contexts yes. and so on. So what they did is they took babies away, baby monkeys away as soon as they were born. Mm -hmm. So within seconds of being born, they took these monkeys away and they put them in cages with two different type of uh, pseudo mothers mm. one and they were um, man-made so one was made out of terry cloth very soft mm. and very comfortable but it had no food so it was this just kind of cloth monkey then there was this other monkey that was made from wire and really uncomfortable and, and sharp and pointed mm -hmm. but it pr gave food and what they noticed is that the monkeys would go when they were hungry to this wire mother that was very uncomfortable, get the new food that they wanted, but then always return to the more comfortable, soft mother figure. And then they did further experiments where they would make loud noises or make the environment uncomfortable. And to seek comfort, they would again choose the soft um, mother as well. So they weren't going just to the one that was producing food. And so it really started pointing out, you know, what is helping build the sensation of attachment? As you mentioned, mm -hmm. we know uh, attachment starts as soon as we are born uh, as human beings. Uh, and remember Watson, evil Watson that we talked about a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, um, you know, when he was saying <laughs> to parents, don't touch your babies, don't love your babies, don't pick them up, don't kiss them, don't show them love. We know how unhealthy this mm -hmm. can be for our development of attachment and our development of love mm -hmm. as well. Um, and so the theories behind attachment, uh, Hazen and Shiver in 1987 looked at romantic love as being a biosocial process similar to how children develop attachments. Mm -hmm. And they believe that all of our uh, attachments as adults, when we look at romantic love, mm -hmm. can be built the same way as with infancy. And there's three main types of attachment that we can be forming. Anxious attachment, which by that name, you can probably imagine it's mm -hmm. not the, the healthiest. <laughs> Avoidant attachment, and then secure attachment. And in secure attachment, one of the things that is needed is an aspect of vulnerability. We could spend weeks just talking about vulnerability. It's one of my favorite topics. Uh, and one of the things that we're learning about love and its connection with vulnerability is mutual vulnerability through self-disclosure is a really powerful tool. Mm -hmm. So mutual vulnerability through self-disclosure self is a really powerful tool because it's not just hormones, I would imagine, mm -hmm. that's helping with love, but for there's sure. probably other things behind it. Yeah, for sure. So in terms of as much as I, I, I find it interesting what's going on with hormones and neurons in our brain, most of the research that I've come across is saying, yes, there is this component to it, but there's other aspects, even things like the attraction in the sense of what skills does this other individual have? What uh, are they? What are their interests? Uh, what do they smell like? Right. <laughs> In terms of just unrelated to just like, oh, oxytocin came out. So therefore, I now love you and done. Right. There's much deeper. Uh, there's a deeper aspect than just chemistry. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
And so in the 1990s, Arthur and Elaine Aaron, uh, they were a married couple, were doing some research on how do we do this vulnerability, this mutual vulnerability uh, through self-disclosure. And what they were recognizing is closeness, that sensation of closeness, is fundamental to start building that triangular, secure love. Mm -hmm. Um, And so they developed 36 questions that if you spent time with a new partner, exploring them, mutually being vulnerable, mm-hmm. mutually engaging in self-disclosure, you could fall in love with each other. Mm-hmm. So if you're listening at home, I recommend you uh, join us, <laughs> do some reflection here and think about what your responses to these questions might be. And let's see if we can uh, maybe spark some love here at the Raya Radio <laughs> station. Um, so there are 36 questions and they divided them into three sets. Mm-hmm. They recommend you sat down for about 90 minutes And the idea was you'd go back and forth with each other, starting at the first question and work your way down the list of 36. And by the end, you should be in love. (laughs) Um, And this really became popular from a New York Times essay from Mandy Lee Crichon in 2015. Um, She really highlighted this research and then it was a very much a buzz topic around 2015 and everyone was starting to explore these 36 questions. (laughs) So divide into three sets. I'm going to ask for a number between 1 to 12 from the Riot Radio staff here in the room. Want to pick a number from 1 to 12? Three. All right. Uh, So I'm going to ask you the question. We can both answer it. And for those listening at home, I encourage you to answer it as well. Uh, We'll do one question from each set. Okay. And let's see if it makes us uh, feel a little bit loved. So the question that was picked here in the room was number three. Number three, making before making a telephone call, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say and why? Hmm. So before making a telephone call, which is dating it a little bit, because I don't think yeah. a lot of millennials or younger individuals <laughs> what make is this phone, phone thing that you're talking <laughs> <anymore>? about. Uh... <laughs> but do you ever rehearse, pre-rehearse what you're going to say to somebody? I would say yes, but it depends on the phone call, right? There's a difference between calling my wife, calling my kids or a family member or friend versus... I'm calling a company to resolve an issue and I'm going to rehearse what I want to say or have some main points that I want to touch on. Is there a common why? Why you do that rehearsal no matter who you're kind of calling? I think for me it's focus because I can be very tangential. And so (laughs) next thing I'm talking to the person from the company and they're like, what the are you talking about? And so it gives me that focus of this is what I'm trying to get at. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I rehearse quite often. Mm-hmm. Very similar though, different depending on kind of who yeah. I'm calling. And I wonder if it's from the same place. I, I think it's from this place of wanting to organize my thoughts mm-hmm. so I don't go down all the Heather rabbit holes that I can go down. <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting to think mm-hmm. about. All right, Riot Radio staff, set two. Pick a number between one and 12. Mm-hmm. Two. So set two is now we're getting a little bit deeper. We're falling more and more into love. So number two out of the set two questions, is there something that you've dreamed of doing for a long time and why haven't you done it? You might have to go first on this one. That's a, that's a deep one. I, for me, something I've dreamt about for a long time that I haven't done. Maybe uh, moving to some acreage. Mm-hmm. It's been a big dream for our family to have a little bit more land, a little bit more trees uh, amongst us. Uh, and I think we just haven't done it. Uh, we like the proximity to city. 
uh, especially pre-COVID. We used to go to Toronto quite a bit. Live music is a big part of our lives, hanging out with friends and being social. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe we're just a little bit scared too of what that adjustment mm -hmm. to a new, new environment, new location, new type of lifestyle, living in the country amongst mm -hmm. the trees would look like. What about yourself? Do you have a dream? I'm gonna cheat a little bit, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I would say there's been stuff in my past, like I enjoy right now woodworking, but there was a time where it was like, I didn't do any of it, but it was because of limits of, I don't have money to do, I don't, or to buy, I don't have this, you know, the, the space, resources. the resources and so on. And, um, and yeah, that was a challenge for a long time. And I think it does relate, even though I'm not coming up with a current one, it relates to various things over time that it's like, oh, I can't because I don't have, or the stars haven't aligned in this way to be able to do it. So. Mm -hmm. Gotta wrangle your own stars, yeah, I was once yeah, told. Yeah, yeah. All right, set three. <laughs> this is when we really are falling in love now. Right, radio staff, number from one to 12? Nine, okay. Question nine in the set three questions. If you were to die this evening with no opportunity to communicate with anyone, what would you most regret not having told somebody? Anything come to mind for that one? Something that needs to be said, something that you want to say to somebody? No, I can't think of something. Other than different. Heather, I'm not doing this radio yeah, show anymore like this with you. This is my last show. There we go. Broke the ice. <laughs> <laughs> I think this question's yeah, interesting, right? Because it gets you reflecting yeah. on those kind of final thoughts and, mm -hmm. and what things maybe are, are left unsaid, mm -hmm. what things need to be said. I think it's hard, too, because I, I go to, like, um, you know, I have young kids. There are knock on wood millions of things left to say to them over our lifespan if you want to see me cry so, any movie or show where uh, they like have letters that they write uh, to their family yeah. or friends that they open up like they know so mm -hmm. it's their 13th birthday and then they open up this card mm. from somebody that had passed years brought i'm i'm a mess yeah. right this idea of it's almost like time travel uh, emotional time travel. yeah i have friends that have had that happen without getting into it and they've told me and there I am uh, you know when was the last time you cried was one of the questions in here and that was one of the last ones I remember where it was all these uh, all these letters and so on but so all that to say yeah not to not answer the question but it's hard because I think that's at least what my brain goes to is more than one thing of the stuff I wouldn't get to say in general and experience in general if you would like to see the 36 questions you can easily yeah. google them we also have put them on our instagram account mm -hmm. at wellpod at dc really interesting to think about how mm -hmm. they might be cultivating the sense of vulnerability and, and shared closeness mm -hmm. with each other um and kind of tied with this i wanted to mention uh one of my favorite books that i've read in the last few years it's called tell me more by kelly uh, corgan have you I have not heard book. of that. No. It's an excellent book. And the premise behind it is, uh, I forget her profession. She might just be a, not just, but she's a journalist and a writer and a storyteller. But this book, she was inspired by the million dollar question, what are the hardest and most potent things we say to one another? Mm -hmm. So this book is almost, you know, if you go to a dinner table conversation, what would be the 12 most important sentences that pass between people? Mm. So very similar to this idea of questions that mm -hmm. kind of cultivate vulnerability and closeness. This book, each chapter, is one of the 12 
things that mm-hmm. she feels is one of the hardest to say. And one of them is, I love you, hmm. is one of the hardest things to mm-hmm. say. Uh, and a quote from her book, page 182, is the first time the words, I love you, is what she's referencing here as the words. So the first time the words pass between two people, electrifying. Hmm. 10,000 times later, cause for marvel. The last time, the dream you revisit over and over and over again. Hmm. And that might not just be grief, a passing, and not being able to say to somebody ever again, mm-hmm. I love you, but also heartbreak. Mm-hmm. And so after this music break, we're going to wrap up our show today talking about heartbreak and responding to that student question on, you know, is it better to have loved and lost and never have loved at all? Heartbreak is hard. So we're going to talk about it after the break. Don't forget to follow us on social media at DCSA Media Hub, as well as at Wellness at DC. Music here, we got Iris by the Goo Goo Dolls and also What is Love by Janelle Monet, right here on riotradio.ca.
Welcome back to the Well Pod at DC. During the break, a very wise member here in the studio was talking about those 36 questions, how they are really vulnerable. They might be good to help you kind of get to know people, especially if you're hoping for a romantic love or mm-hmm. a committed love. Um, but they said something really powerful, I thought, they, that the inviting people to that level of vulnerability and willing to be seen can be tricky and can mm-hmm. be hard. For sure. Yeah. We found a good quote about kind of a connection here as well. Yeah. Do you still have well, it handy? I've put it, I put it away now, but <laughs> it was one that I heard. I was listening to a podcast by uh, Simon Sinek, and he um, was quoting someone else. But let's see, I'm opening all of the wrong things here. <laughs> so, oh, it's just... Dis- what neurons are firing? It's, what, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, the quote was, love is giving someone the power to destroy you, mm. but trusting them not to. And I thought it was very good, though, again, discussions that I've had or or read online that, uh, like any quote, it's not uh, perfect or there's stuff to consider. But uh, I like that one a lot from the, yeah, what these questions you just talked about are tied to, right? Opening up about I'm going to answer these 36 questions but uh, as you said, someone else was sharing, right? You might not let everyone know each of the answers because of the level that they're, that they're at. Be interesting to ask those questions newly dating, newly mm-hmm. with somebody, and then seeing how, if you tried to answer them 5, 10, 20 years later, mm-hmm. the different For ways sure. that you'd respond. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So is our heart really breaking when we go through heartbreak? What's happening when we start entering Mm -hmm. that kind of phase of love where maybe the passion has left or the commitment has left? Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as unrequited love when we we love somebody, but that love isn't being returned. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can get down a a really kind of dark hole with stalking and and obsessive love. For sure. What's happening during heartbreak? Yeah, so I think there's a couple aspects just trying to get my brain organized but relative to heartbreak if we were dealing with you know okay someone has broken up with me or whatnot is again not that it's all chemistry my brain chemistry based but there's an aspect of i was in this uh, relationship there was happiness hormones and bonding hormones being released and now relationship ends 
and there's not that release of dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, as we spoke about. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of heartbreak on a biological uh, level is the, but I I want that to oversimplify, right? And especially when the freshest it is, is the, but now these hormones are not being released. And so there's that shock of where's the happiness and where's Mm -hmm. the, I'm not bonded with somebody anymore and, uh, and so on. Again, it goes habit loop that we were talking about a few weeks ago. Yes. Right. So we've got into this routine. We've Mm -hmm. got into this habit loop Mm -hmm. that includes a dopamine hit and oxytocin Mm -hmm. hit every Mm -hmm. once in a while. For sure. And now that habit loop is broken. Mm -hmm. We're out of that routine. Yeah. But our brain is also missing and going to start seeking. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think there's some overlap with a different situation of, you know, over time not necessarily even a breakup but the relationship isn't what it once was and so it still kind of comes down to some of that so one article I was reading where it's we're still together it's just not what it was was do some of the things that causes those uh, those yeah those dopamine (laughs) hits and not in a sort of addictive sense but like we get into a routine and now there aren't as many date nights where there's holding of hands or sex or whatnot that lead to that not just for the sake of the dopamine hit but from the attachment standpoint Mm -hmm. but then it's interesting from the breakup aspect is that kind of can't happen of course because now there's the breakup but we still want those things and what it can you know potentially lead to where yeah one article i was reading was by a a therapist who was saying i tend to see and this was uh not um uh quantifiable per se but people who start drinking more after breakups because really the alcohol gives you the kind of equivalent of that dopamine hit or other hookups because Mm. then the sex is there right in order to have that uh uh, you know uh, vasopressin uh, shot if you will and so on Absolutely. In Unrequited Love, this is from Lisa Phillips. And so as mentioned earlier, it's kind of a book where she talks about when we have a crush on somebody, perhaps like a celebrity Mm -hmm. uh, or somebody that we know, but that love isn't being returned after a breakup and we are a little bit obsessive as well. One of the approaches she talks about is breaking that reward seeking behavior of -hmm. that obsessive love, Mm -hmm. especially after a breakup or if it's unrequited love, it's not being returned. And it talks about uh, the more you give into impulses and back into those routines, mm-hmm. the more custom your brain becomes to this quick yet weak dose of reassurance. So we need to recognize this as a craving, a misguided urge of our brain and try to do activities and different things that are a little bit more productive. It taps into the brain's neuroplasticity, the capacity to take on uh, new, mm-hmm. something new. And so breaking that cycle, breaking yeah. that loop, not looking at old pictures, yeah. not listening to love songs that mm-hmm. reminds us of that person. I, uh, I read another article, but kind of talked about that same thing where they said uh, that uh, go, go love sober for 30 days. Mm. And it, it was the not to cut off all relationships and so on, but like do other stuff to ultimately replace those those hits so it's not a cold turkey but it's not uh facebook i'm old uh (laughs) social media i should just leave it general you know stalking what are they up to now and so on but let me go hang out with my my friend friends right or even one they said you know yeah go you might go to a bar and flirt with somebody but not for them is this just like 
I had some social interaction. It was nice to meet someone new, not from uh, I'm replacing you know you with someone else, or just having good diet, exercise, and so on over those 30 days just to get the oxytocin back to where it was before, you know, like in terms of before the relationship and so on and move on, if that makes sense. Final 10 seconds. Is it worth falling in love? What's the, what's the saying? Is it worth love? Um, Is it it better to have loved loved and and lost lost than never have loved at all? Yeah, I, yes. And, um, we didn't have time to get to it, but I've actually come across research where they have looked at well-being of people who are in long-term relationships versus always single versus had on and off again relationships. And in terms of the on and off again, which is the loved and lost, yeah. well-being was very similar to having stayed single for uh, the whole time. The long-term committed relationships tended to have a little bit uh, higher well-being in the end, but it was kind of interesting from the, yeah, things work out, uh, work out in the end. Well, thank you. We love that you're here listening to our show. It's the end of our show today. Some of the books and resources are on our Instagram account, Wellness at DC. Next week, we're talking stress. So we're going to talk about what's happening in our body when we're getting stressed, and we're going to practice some different tools to help you regulate and reduce the stress during the stressful time of our school mm-hmm. year. Don't forget to email any questions or topic ideas, wellpod at durhamcollege.ca. And taking us out, here's one of my favorite love songs and some of my friends' favorite love songs. So shout out to the people I love in my life. Here's Lost Together by Blue Rodeo, playing us out on riotradio.ca.
sense of this whispered now I listen only to your breath And in that second of it Shouldn't stop Somehow It all makes sense And I want all the world To know That you're 